Well, tonight we return to Leviticus. We were here last on the final Sunday, Lord's Day of November, the Sunday right after Thanksgiving. And first, let me anticipate the worry that some of you might have. I promise, I pledge that we will not have a two-year-long verse-by-verse exposition through every phrase of Leviticus. And that's not to say that there wouldn't be profit in that. But I think it would be too much except for the hardiest and bravest among us. But second, and we, I pointed this out in the first two messages, I want to remind us that this book, the middle of the book of Moses, really the epicenter of the Pentateuch is sacred scripture. As much as the Psalms, as much as John or Romans or the book of Ephesians. And so I want to encourage us to pray for, to plan for, and to prepare for more than you might have anticipated. And I promise we'll only have about 15-ish messages in this book. By the middle of April, just after Easter, which is March 31st, we'll conclude with this book. This is our third message, all right? And to accomplish that, though, over 15 messages, we can't possibly do a detailed verse-by-verse exposition of Leviticus. But what we can do is to see how this book contributes to the Pentateuch, the Old Testament, the whole of the Bible, the story of redemption, and point us, really literally bring us all the way to where we will long to know, to love, to worship, to adore, and to obey Jesus Christ our Lord. So songs like, All Glory Be to Christ Our King, are not just a song that we like because we like its rhythm or cadence or its tune, because it's a reality planted deep in us, that we will long to do all this for our Lord Jesus, the one who is the final word we read in Hebrews 1, who is the lamb, John 1, who takes away the sin of the world, who is the fulfillment of every type, therefore the antitype, who is the substance and reality of every deepening shadow and the very fulfillment of each promise and every ardent longing across the pages of Scripture. This is really the grandest story of them all, the story of redemption. So here it is. In 200 words or so. And I want to encourage you to do this. Just a quick application. A goal for 2024. Write out what is the gospel. What is the story of redemption. Because as you do this. And you're reading through the scriptures. You'll grow. And so I did this. As we think of this. I want to gift this to you. As part of this sermon as we introduce this. The story of redemption in 200 words. God in love from eternity, or in love and from eternity, covenants as the one in three-person God to redeem an uncountable multitude from their sin and bring them into an unfathomable relationship with him, colon. The Father electing a people in love before eternity began, but not because of anything he saw in them. 
The Son accomplishing redemption by the once for all time perfect sacrificial substitutionary offering of himself upon the cross for those elect of the Father. The Spirit sent by the Father and the Son applying the redemption planned by the Father, accomplished by the Son, by convicting the elect of their sin, showing them Christ, drawing them by cords of love to the Father, raising them from death to life, bringing them out of the darkness of their rebellion into his glorious light, giving them new hearts, taking out their stony hearts and replacing it with hearts of flesh, writing his law upon their hearts, enlightening their minds, renewing their affections, subduing their wills in a word, making all things new. This, friends, is the grand story of redemption. And it's worth telling over and over again, worth preaching to every creature and to all creation. And Leviticus contributes to this grand story. There it is, 200 words. Honestly, I think that you'll find the book of Leviticus like a person that when you met them the first time, you weren't very impressed or didn't even like them all that much. But the more you got to know them, the more you spent with them, they grew on you. You developed an affection and respect for them. That's my own experience with Leviticus as I keep reading and rereading this book. And I think potential that Leviticus has this potential, as does every other book of Holy Scripture. So let's pray that we might have that experience. A brief review, and if you'll turn there to the book of Leviticus, page 81 in the ESV Bible, that'll be helpful. The reality is that you could break this book down in seven sections, but it's very helpful to think of it in two large chunks. The first 16 chapters of Leviticus are focused on our approach to God by way of atonement, culminating in chapter 16 in the Day of Atonement. Some of you know from the first two messages on Leviticus that in a sense, we might say that the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16 is the Everest, not just of Leviticus, but of the entire Pentateuch. In the next 11 chapters, chapters 17 through 27, then part two, deal with our ongoing fellowship or communion with God in the holiness that he both desires and requires us for us to maintain it. It's ironic, isn't it, how Pastor Jamie was in Hebrews 12, 14, this morning, pursue peace with all men, I know we focus there, and the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Some 150 times in this book, you'll find some form of the word Kadesh or Kodesh for holy, all right? Dr. Michael Morales from Greenville Press Seminary is really helpful as we seek to get our arms around these first five books of the Bible but especially around Leviticus as the book in the center, okay? I thought about how kids enjoy, like our little granddaughter sometimes will take an Oreo, maybe you do this, you take it apart and you go for what's in the center first. Like you wanna eat the filling before you, maybe some of you know what that's like. 
okay? Don't miss the filling here around Leviticus. And so the dominating concern of these first five books of the Bible, as well as the whole of the Bible, is how humanity may come to dwell in the house of God. Look, if you will, just for a moment, look at Leviticus 1 in that expression of this person offering the burnt offering that he may be accepted before the Lord. Now, because there's a great connection as the tabernacle is completed, the end of Exodus 40, and what's evident here then is here is, all right, the use of that tabernacle with the offering of these five major offerings. But go back, turn to Exodus 25. In verse 8, the Lord is speaking, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst. Okay, here it is. What's the purpose of the sanctuary? And therefore, how should we view all the activity around it? It's that God says that I may dwell in their midst. That's why Dr. Morales says that the dominating concern here, the Pentateuch, is how humanity may come to dwell in the house of God. Now, I want to pause just for a minute. Kids, we know, most of you know this, but I want to go back to this. The most important question you'll ever ask, the most important question you'll ever, you ever need to get the answer to is how can I be right with God? Another way of saying that is how can I have a relationship with God? And the whole, of the, the whole Bible is gonna help us answer that question, all right? And we don't do that on our own. We don't do that with our own works, our own righteousness, because we're better than others. All right? In fact, we read in, in the book of Romans, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so the whole story of the Bible really is helping us answer that question from the fall, from Genesis chapter 3. Now, speaking of this humanity coming to dwell in the house of God, in the Mosaic Covenant, the near emphasis was on the tabernacle, and then it was on the temple that was built by Solomon. But I want to quote Michael Morales here as he speaks of the advent of Christ. And of course, the last four weeks, we've been thinking up until Christmas, of the advent, the appearance of our Lord Jesus, who became flesh, he dwelt among us, we speak of the incarnation. And Michael Morales says this, the advent of Christ would open a new and living way, all right, in the house of God. There was the tabernacle, then there's the sanctuary, but here it is. By Christ's coming, he would open a new and living way in the house of God. And he goes on to say, indeed, that was the goal of his taking humanity upon himself of his suffering of his resurrection and of his ascension Yahweh is opening a way for humanity to dwell in his presence or as we just saw in Exodus 25 for God to dwell 
among us. It's both. You speak of, think of it this way. And because of this, holiness is that an appropriate one-word theme for the book. So as we look, look ahead, remember, I want to encourage some of you like to bring, instead of a Bible, you want to bring a phone. If ever you want to bring a Bible, I think in this series it's going to be really be helpful as we go back and forth within the text. Um, it's just difficult to scroll across multiple chapters sometimes through your phone. But, of course, there's a pew or a chair Bible in front of you. So where are we tonight? Between tonight and next Lord's Day morning, I want us to look closely at the five major offerings that we find in the first seven chapters of Leviticus. Think about it. These seven chapters are one-fourth of the whole book. And it's not really complicated. There is a sense in which we're overlapping my message from November 26th. And I want to give the offerings now in order as they're found in the first five plus chapters. And I don't know if, if you've been reading in this book, you're gonna, you'll, you may have already discovered something that I want to point out. These first five, these five major offerings in order are the burnt offering, the grain offering, the peace offering, the sin offering, and the guilt offering. And in fact, as Brother Eric read tonight, those were a few verses from each of these, all right? And tonight, we're just going to return and consider the burnt offering and the grain offering. Next Sunday morning, we'll finish the next three. But from the first verse of the book until chapter 6 and verse 7, Moses is laying out the nature of these five offerings. And the focus in this section from 1-1 until chapter 6, verse 7, for these five major offerings is the general procedure and the reasons for each of the offerings. And I want to tell you honestly that there are some commentators that quite allegorize who see some significance in each detail of the offerings. And it takes some judgment to try to say what really makes sense with the rest of Scripture, right? Trying to take a section on one offering and saying all those details how do we make sense of them? But from 1 1 to 6 7 is the general procedure and reasons. But you'll notice then when you get to 6 8, from there till the end of chapter 7, Moses is addressing the proper handling, the eating, and the disposing of each of those five offerings. But there's a reversed order. You might remember that peace offerings is in the middle. So it goes burnt, grain, peace. Burnt, grain, peace, sin, and guilt. But in review, at chapter 6, verse 8, when the Lord says to Moses, look, command Aaron and his sons, and you see this word, this is the law, right? Or this is, right, the, the, the order for how you're to deal with the burnt offerings, the order changes. It remains burnt offering, then grain offering, but then it's sin offering, guilt offering, and the peace offering falls all the way to the last. More on that next week while the peace offering does this. But tonight, just briefly, I want us to look at the burnt offering, and again, there'll be some duplication from five weeks ago on November 26. The burnt offering, as you look at it, this in the first chapter of Leviticus, is 
the very first of the major offerings. And it's paired, if you want to hold this and look at that, it's paired with chapter 6, verse 8 through 13. Again, you'll see the character, the general, the procedure, the reasons for it, chapter 1, but then the handling, the eating, and this disposing of that in chapter 6, verses 8 through 13. And it's telling that this is the first of the offerings. Actually, if you look to the left on page 80 in the ESV, the burnt offerings kind of front and center. It was highlighted there in chapter 40 in verse 6, verse 10, verse 29. And whether bulls, sheep, or goats, or an offering of goats, you'll see there's a, these levels so that anyone, no matter their station in life, the degree of their wealth could bring a burnt offering. You'll notice that they were fully and fragrantly accepted. You might say they were wholly offered. We'll see more of that in a moment. Why? Why was this offering brought? And you'll always see, let me point out broadly, as you look at these seven chapters that it's only the peace offering that has a unique expression where it says a sacrifice of peace offerings. Otherwise, it's burnt offering, grain offering, sacrifice of peace offering, sin offering, guilt offering. But there's the reason that the offerer was bringing it, that the end of verse 3, that he may be accepted before the Lord. And this connects to our thing about what's the Bible, what's the big question the Bible is addressing. And it's how we may be accepted before, before the Lord. And that the offering was to be a perfect firstborn male intersex with all that Jesus is, for he was the same. Have you thought about that? He was the only begotten son of the Father who's described in Hebrews seven twenty six as holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. And when Paul gives the picture of love within the, the body of Christ in Ephesians 5, 1 through 2, we can draw this solid line from the burnt offering of Leviticus 1 to the offering of our Lord Jesus. And I read <laughs> Ephesians 5, 1 through 2, listen. And Paul is saying this is how we're to relate to one another in the body of Christ. This is what it means to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which we've been called, Ephesians 4.1. He says, therefore, be imitators of God. And you say, hey, what does God look like? Here it is. You want to imitate God? Walk his beloved children. He says, and walk in love. As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. The animals of the burnt offering that were offered rightly gave a pleasing aroma to the Lord. You know what that's like. This is all the savory offerings. You come in to your home. Maybe it's Thanksgiving and there's a turkey. Or it's Easter and you're doing a leg of lamb or there are ribeye steaks on the grill. But you know what that's like for there to be that pleasing aroma, all right? 
these animals that were offered rightly gave a pleasing aroma to the Lord. We're told that three times in chapter one. And so it was with Christ. He was that fragrant offering and sacrifice to God that was pictured in the burnt offering. There's a final shadow from the burnt offering. You see how, you see how the offerer laid his hand upon the head of the bull. This is atonement where the Hebrew word kapur, like Yom Kippur, is translated atone or to atone. It's ours here to see. Look at that in verse 4. Lay is not, that's a different word. He shall lay his head on the head of the burnt offering and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. And the hand on the head of the animal symbolize the transfer of the guilt of the person, the offerer, to the animal. And so now when you read Isaiah 53, 6, and you read these words that the Lord has laid on him, the iniquity of us all, we are being told of his atonement. And this is the reality pictured for us here first in the burnt offering. As we learned from John Murray, we saw this in weeks past, what was unique about our Lord's death was that unlike this picture where there was in fact the offerer was distinct from the offering and then even a, there was a priest so that there were actually three elements, the priest, the offerer, the offering, they all come together with Christ, our great high priest who offered himself the offer and the offering are one and the same that's actually the idea here in Ephesians 5 when you look in Ephesians 5 and this is the love that is to mark the mark that Francis Schaeffer says is the mark of the Christian that we love one another when you see that in verse Two of Ephesians 5. And it's to characterize the way we as men are to love our wives. Ephesians 5.25. And it says, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. This isn't simply giving. This is the same word that's translated betrayed. It's to hand ourselves over. It is literally the offerer offering himself one. And the same. And as the offer in Leviticus signified his acceptance and his identification with his offering, as he put his hand on that hair, on the feeling the fur of the animal, the hair, whether it was a bull or sheep or goat, it applies to every Christian. So here's my question. Let's apply this. Are you a Christian? Maybe some of you are thinking, I'm not yet, I'm not sure then you're, if you are though, this is what it means, okay? So as we think about that question, if you are, you are justified by faith and your faith is reckoned as righteousness just like Abraham's because your faith identifies you with Christ who died as your sin offering or in this case, your burnt offering. We talked about this recently. We don't wanna make this mistake that we understand that grace is the source of our justification. 
Faith is the instrument. Faith is the pipe that delivers but doesn't have the power of the grace that brings God's favor and salvation to us. And God's glory is the goal of it. But as surely, brothers and sisters, as surely as the offerer's hand was laid on the bull, sheep or goat, your acceptance with God, your identity in God are entirely in Christ Jesus. There is no other place of safety. So I want to ask a question by way of application. Let's pause for a moment. Let's do a timeout. Where is your identity as a Christian? Could it be expressed in any other way than the words to the song that we'll, we sang and we'll sing yet again? All glory be to Christ, our King. Is it in your work, your identity? Is it in your role? Is it in your calling, your vocation? Is it in your wealth? Is it in the amount of friends you have? Let's, as we finish 2023, part of preaching this gospel to ourselves is to understand that we are fully accepted and we have our complete identity in Christ, in Christ alone. That's why Paul can easily say in Philippians, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And when he was wrestling with contentment, he could say, here's the secret. We talked about this even in our Sunday school class this morning. I can do what? All things through Christ who strengthens me so that our lives are not wrecked when things go awry, when we are dealing with deep and heavy laden trials, we're struggling with indwelling sin. Life, our life seems like a shipwreck, a train wreck. It's just we're all over the road. Our identity, our acceptance are in God alone. All right? We are like Paul says to the Colossians in Colossians 3, you've died and you're hidden with Christ in God. Now, turn with me to chapter 6 of Leviticus just for a moment. We'll do this next week too briefly that, to see that Moses is addressing the handling and disposal of the burnt offering. It corresponds to chapter 1. This is verses 8 through 13. What do we see? First, it was an all-night fire. The fire was to be maintained. The second, the priest in proper clothing was to dispose of the ashes in a clean place outside the camp, but only after changing garments. In fact, I realized to be a priest kind of looks like a three or four-year-old that's changing clothes several times a day. It kind of looks like that. But third, you'll see the fire was to be kept burning continually by Aaron and his sons, the priest, both for the burnt offerings, but also for the fat of the peace offering. What does all this mean? Let me propose that the requirement for the fire to burn all night with the burnt offering speaks to how it must be fully consumed. It required all of it. It's why the Lord Jesus, on the night of his passion, would pray, Father, if possible, let this cup pass from me. 
But he would say, but not my will, but yours be done. There was no particle. There's nothing to be meted out of the wrath of God that was not absorbed by the Son of God on the cross for his sheep. Nothing. And mercy there at the cross, mercy and justice met, but you might say that mercy triumphed ultimately even and, 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 and consumed all of God's wrath. It completely satisfied it. And so the burnt offering was burnt to ashes. It's not like sometimes, you know, I'll have a fire and I'll leave it or whatever and I'll come back and the fire's out, but all the wood is not burned up. This is not the case with the burnt offering. There was nothing left to burn in the morning. And so our Lord Jesus gave his all for us, even as the fine flour with the grain offering is a picture of the perfections of his sacrifice. Do you see, look there in chapter six, verse two, or verse 12, rather. You see how the priest was required to carry the ashes outside the camp to a clean place. That's going to reach another level with the sin offering in chapter 4, verse 12, where the priest was required to transport most of the sacrifice bull out to a clean place to the ash heap and was to burn it up on a fire of wood. And, and, and we read this in 4.12. On the ash heap it shall be burned up. And it was that act, as we see this developed, right, from simply the ashes being carried out to a clean place, to then the whole of this bur- the bull of the sin offering is carried out side the gate so that when we read in Hebrews 13, 12, we understand that this was ultimately fulfilled by our Lord Jesus. The writer says in Hebrews 13, 12, so Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. This is the burnt offering. Briefly, I want to address the grain offering, chapter 2. And it's paired with chapter 6, verses 14 through 23. In a sense, all five of the grain offerings are somewhat addressed twice in these seven chapters. And this is the second major offering. It takes up the whole of chapter 2, but the handling and eating of it is addressed in chapter 6, verses 14 through 23. As we look at chapter 2, I want you to see that expression, fine flour, in verse 1. It's the main ingredient. And like the burnt offering, it too is a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Someone has commented that as you look, as you read these words, fine flour, it's saying that there was nothing he gave that was not required. There was nothing required that he did not give. That there was a perfection to our Lord's atoning death. Look there at the, the requirement for oil in verses 2, 4, and 7. This symbolizes this is one who was born of the Spirit and upon whom the Spirit rested. You see frankincense in verses 1, verse 2, and 15 of chapter 2. They represented 
the fragrance of his life before God. This is the one um, of whom God said, right? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Look also at the prohibition of leaven in verse 11. The prohibition of leaven in verse 11 there. Leaven always has as a symbol, a metaphor for sin, for impurity. It was prohibited in this offering. Why? Because he is the truth. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Look how salt was required in verse 13. You see this unique expression. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. You ask, what do you mean of the salt of the covenant? Salt typically was required for ancient covenants that they be ratified or so that the uh, ancient covenants were actually ratified by meals of food that were seasoned with salt. Maybe some of you salt your food before you taste it. Sometimes, very stupidly, I do that. It's a bad habit, okay? But no, virtually every covenant in, in the ancient world was ratified by meals seasoned with it. So they became a symbol for the covenant between God and Israel. You'll see that actually, Numbers 18, verse 19, 2 Chronicles 13 and verse 5. And when this grain offering was offered by a priest, it was to be wholly consumed by fire. You'll see that. Look at chapter 6 and verse 23. Every grain offering of a priest shall be wholly burned, it shall not be eaten. But look at this. Look at verse 15, verse 17 of that same chapter, chapter 6. You'll notice this will be verse 15 and then verse 17. When you take these together, there'll be a food offering. And so when they were offered by others, the priests would keep the remainder of this grain offering for their own food after the memorial handful had been really committed to the altar flames. You can look at it there, chapter 6, verse 15, right? A handful of this with its oil, its frankincense, it was burned as a memorial portion on the altar, verse 15. Then verse 17, right? The same idea. Won't be baked with leaven. I've given it as their portion of my food offering. It's a thing most holy like the sin offering and the guilt offering. I want you to see too as we think just briefly, just for a minute more on the grain offering, that you'll notice in chapter 2 and verse 13, where, or verse 3, chapter 2, verse 3, it says this, but the rest of the grain offering, right, First, some of it is burned, right? A handful is burned as a memorial portion. But the rest of the grain offering shall be for Aaron and his sons. It's the most holy part of the Lord's food offerings. And I want us to consider for a moment that this is the first time we see this benefit accruing to the priests for their work. It's the first time that there's benefit accruing to the priests
for their work between uh, the two offerings. Beyond the fact that this was in their work, chapter 1, that there was this pleasing aroma, we see here then when you read that this grain offering shall be for Aaron and for his sons, for them to enjoy his food, right? A food offering and a benefit accruing. This is the first thing. Now, let's close. I'd like us to turn, and we'll end on this. Wesley, you can come, brother. You come make your way to the piano. So we'll be done. Turn with me to first. Peter, chapter 2. And we'll, we will, after our final song, we'll sing this, the, um, the, the last, you know, the song that we sang, yeah. And I want you all to come forward, and we're going to sing together as a community. Chapter 2, verse 4, 1 Peter. Peter here is talking to Christians, and he says, as you come to him, which is very interesting, you think, I'm a Christian, I've already come to him. No, in an ongoing way as we come to Christ. A living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. I said that in the grain offering, in the words of Leviticus 2, verse 3, where it says, but the rest of the grain offering shall be for Aaron and his sons. It's the first expression of benefit accruing to the priests for their work. And I think there was no way, I don't know that those priests had any sense as they were like, look at this that we have, that we can eat, all right? And to enjoy that, that they were pointing forward. It was pointing forward to all the benefits that accrue to us who are in Christ as we like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood so that we may offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Even as we offer spiritual sacrifices to him, we have every benefit. It's the reason that Paul says in Ephesians one, he speaks of every spiritual blessing that are ours in Christ Jesus. These first 16 chapters of Leviticus are about our finding acceptance to God through atonement. And that points both in type and in shadows and in promise to the Son of God who was slain for us. Let's look to him tonight and every day of 2024. Let's see.